This episode of The Dig is brought to you by the listeners who support us on Patreon. And by Verso, one title that we think Dig listeners would enjoy is The Dilemmas of Lenin, Terrorism, War, Empire, Love, Revolution by Tariq Ali. On the centenary of the Russian Revolution, Ali paints an illuminating portrait of the leader of the October 1917 uprising, one of the most misunderstood leaders of the 20th century. In his own time, there were many, even amongst his enemies, who acknowledged the full magnitude of his intellectual and political achievements. But his legacy has been lost in misinterpretation. He is worshipped, but rarely read. The Dilemmas of Lenin, Terrorism, War, Empire, Love, Revolution, by Tariq Ali. Out now from Verso. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. On a political economic level, mass incarceration serves to control impoverished people and populations that have been excluded from the labor market. Politically, tough-on-crime rhetoric has for decades been a tool for politicians to appeal to white voters' racism. But what's less discussed is the complicated history of criminal justice politics within black communities and amongst black politicians. In the 1960s, violent crime and heroin use spiked in black neighborhoods. Black people responded in complex and not monolithic ways. There was a heavy debate about how to deal with violent crime and drugs that included calls to fulfill the black freedom struggle's demands for social and economic justice to address the root causes of crime. But there were also popular demands for a law and order crackdown in many cities, including in Washington, D.C. That's the subject of the history that my guest James Foreman Jr. tells in his new book, Locking Up Our Own, Crime and Punishment in Black America. Foreman is a professor at Yale Law School, and he clerked for Judge William Norris of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit and for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor of the U.S. Supreme Court. He also spent six years at the Public Defender Service in Washington, D.C. As I've discussed before, I believe that to end the horror that is mass incarceration, we must have a clear-eyed view about how street violence and disorder informed and informs people and politicians' increasingly punitive approach over the past few decades, an approach that has led to one of the greatest human rights catastrophes on Earth— and that ultimately serves political, economic, and social ends that have little to nothing to do with public safety. James Foreman Jr., welcome to The Dig. Thank you. Your book tells a fascinating story about tough-on-crime politics in Washington, D.C., a city with a long history of congressionally enforced segregation and marginalization, a city where the black majority peaked at 71% in 1971, and that only first achieved a measure of home rule in 1973. Um, It was also the first major city with a majority black police department. And your book jumps into this really complicated discussion about black law and order politics, Looking back at D.C., what did you find? Well, I found a city that in many ways ended up following the national trends on 
criminal justice in 70s, 80s, 90s. And that that was really the, the sort of figuring out why that happened um, was, for me, the central question of the book. It For me, the, the questions arose based on my experience as a public defender um, in D.C. in the 90s. And I had taken that job because I viewed it as the civil rights work of my generation. My parents had met in the civil rights movement and uh, in SNCC, and, and they had passed along to me this idea that what it meant, what it means to be an African-American, what it means to be a civil rights advocate, advocate is you try to find the thing that is sort of most kind of oppressing the black community, and you work on that. And for them, it was Jim Crow. And for me in the 90s, it looked to be mass incarceration, although we didn't have the term then, um, but that idea um, of overpunishment and overcriminalization. And so then when I was practicing as a public defender in D.C., I saw that there were lots of African-American decision makers. I would be in, in, in courtrooms that were majority black spaces, and yet it was very harsh and my clients were very vilified and very demonized and my colleagues and I in the public defender's office a lot, many of us african american because uh, it was a very integrated work space and still is talked about it incessantly you know we were we had all come to the job because we saw it as racial justice work and we were all struck by how frequently we would meet and confront whether it was prosecutors or judges or probation officers, parole officers, social workers, people who didn't seem to have a lot of sympathy for our clients or their or their plight. And so that kind of question, how did it come to be that, that an enfranchised African-American community came to follow the national trends was one that it's really started to consume me in the 1990s and didn't you know, it, it still consumes me, although now that I've read the book, I, I'm less consumed by it. And I'm more, um, I'm more, I feel like I have some of the answers. Um, so, yeah. One thing that you recover that's not often talked about today, but is pretty obvious to anyone who has lived in a city with a lot of crime, is that large majorities of black people were in D.C. and other places were terrified, traumatized, and furious over the violence and disorder in their streets. Um, Marion, Mayor Marion Barry, um, who was ultimately arrested on crack charges himself, but before that, used to refer to these uh, people as gun thugs and drug thugs. Tell me about, about how people in D.C. experienced crime and how that translated into tough on crime politics. Yeah, well, so I think you have a, a bunch of things. My story really starts. There are some chapters that go back further in time, but in general, the story starts in the '60s and sort of the decade before the before Home Rule and the African American politicians finally get to have some say over 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 criminal justice policy in the '70s. But so in the '60s, in D.C. and nationally, we have a a historic by American standards and world standards crime rise. So the the homicide rate in D.C. triples and nationally it doubled. And uh, heroin really devastated black communities uh, in that decade in a way that I don't think that many people remember now. I wasn't alive for it, so I had to recover it through through reading, you know, historical material. But 
in the early 1960s, there, 3% of the people who entered D.C. jail were considered heroin addicts. And by 1969, it was 45%. Um, and, you know, that's really, that's an epidemic. And it wasn't just the numbers, so the, the, the rates of homicide and the rates of addiction, but it was also, as you said, the kind of terror and the trauma that these induce. So, so one of the things that I did is I found a lot of letters, a lot of, a lot of elected officials from the city council retired, donated their papers to various DC libraries and especially George Washington University's library. And so you go and you read the citizen letters and you get letter after letter. These are mostly black citizens writing to mostly black city council members. And they're saying things like, you know, I feel like a prisoner in my own own home. I feel like a stranger on my streets. I can't leave my house because they're shooting on the corner. I don't want to let my kids play in the park because of the robberies. There are drug dealers outside my house. There, I found a syringe in my backyard that my toddler was going to go play in yesterday afternoon. You have to do something about it. You have to fix this problem, right? So... So there's this incredible kind of anger and fear and pain. And, and some people are self-reflective. They say, you know, we just beat Jim Crow. How is this happening to us? Do something. And the people that are receiving these letters, and this is a very big part of my story, the people that are receiving these letters, they are this first generation of African-American elected officials, some of them from the civil rights movement, some of them from the South, all of them remember a history that in some ways is lost to us now, but was very real to them, which is generations of under-protection and under-enforcement of the law in black neighborhoods. Black people who committed crimes against whites or even who were alleged or falsely accused were terrorized by law enforcement. And we know that story, the lynchings, the Emmett Till. But the other thing that was happening that they were very aware of is that for regular crimes or assaults or robberies in black neighborhoods where black people were being victimized, the police never came. You didn't call them because you knew they weren't going to come. And if they did, they were only going to make matters worse. So this is a generation of people that knows and has lived that history. Now they have some semblance of power and they are bound and determined, if nothing else, to make the law work for black citizens, for black victims, to have black victims protected in a way that they never were throughout the hundred years of American history. And so they begin to do what they can. They can't do everything that they want to do in response. And that's one of the things I hope we'll get to, but they can mobilize law enforcement. They can make the police crack down and they can push for more prosecution and tougher laws, and in the case of D.C., pass tougher laws, because they have that ability in the city council. And so that's what they do. And they view themselves as, in many ways, you know, when I think about it now, I think about it as, as a contradiction with the civil rights movement, because I imagine myself, as I said, as a public defender, occupying that space of the civil rights worker or the, the descendant of civil rights workers, but many of them use the same civil rights frame to explain and to defend the tough, aggressive laws because they imagine themselves as responding to that history of under protection and under enforcement. So for some of them, 
it was just a continuation of the civil rights struggle. As hard as that is, I think today, knowing all we know about overpunishment and overcriminalization to contend with, that's how they saw it. How does your story square with the other stories <clears throat> that we know on the left about the rise of mass incarceration, which is that politicians built the system by appealing to white racism to control people, black people in the wake of the 1960s urban rebellions and, and ultimately and functionally speaking to serve as a mechanism to uh to, to discipline and control people excluded from the highly unequal labor market that's emerged in recent decades? I think that story is overwhelmingly true um, and extraordinarily powerful. And I see this story as sitting alongside of it. So something can be, can be very true and yet incomplete. Um, that is to say there can be um, parts of the story that remain unexplained. And that's what I see my book as doing, as explaining a piece of the history of the last 50 years that isn't explained completely by the, the narrative that you've just um, described. So I, I rely heavily on and draw from lots of the books that have made the forms of the argument that you're describing, whether it's you know, Brian Stevenson and Just Mercy or Ta-Nehisi Coates and Between the World and Me, Michelle Alexander, The New Jim Crow, going back to, you know, two decades earlier, people like Michael Tonnery, who were writing about racism in the war on drugs and the war on crime starting in the mid-1990s, uh, The Sentencing Project, Mark Maurer, David Cole, right? There's sort of generations of writers that have documented um, that have built the kind of pieces of that that narrative that you've described. And it's the story that drew me to become a public defender. Uh, it's a story that I've seen in practice. One of my first cases when I was in, in, in law school, I worked for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and we represented a guy who was convicted and put on death row in Utah, a black guy, all-white jury, and found in the jury room after his sentencing was a, was a hangman game that the jurors, we believe, had been playing. And uh, there were six letters, uh, and N and I were filled out, and the other four were left blank. And that, I mean, that's just like a very concrete and visible example of kind of racism playing out in an individual case. And all of that story, whether it's at that level or whether it's at the national politician level, Goldwater, right, Nixon, Reagan, using um, race as a coded way, uh, using crime as a coded way to talk about race, all of that was happening. And at the same time, what I find is a lot of African American, both citizens and especially elected officials and law enforcement um, functionaries and bureaucrats were ending up in some of the same places, although often with different motivations. And so that's, the, that's I think, to me, the contribution of this story. Is it uncovers complicated black politics uh, and, and shows how so many of them, although they had different motivations in many instances, so many of them or so many of us, because um, I consider myself part of the story, even as I'm telling the story, um, ended up uh, endorsing this a similar set of policies. And I think you thread that needle really well, 
because you look at the kind of dominant media narratives and conservative politics, and on that end, mass incarceration is all about crime. On the evening news, law and order, uh, cops and courts is all about about crime. And so it seems like the left sometimes and often in reaction um, doesn't pay any attention to crime at all, which is not really doing justice to people's lived experiences. Even if mass incarceration isn't a just response to crime, which it isn't, um, I don't think we're in a very good position to fight it if we don't understand how actual violence and trauma inform and shape people's attitudes towards the criminal justice system. I think that's exactly right. And I think that, you know, one of the one of the aspects of the book that when I really sat down to figure out how to structure it as a piece of writing and you have to make so many choices when you do that. And there and there are, there are there's a lot that gets left out. I think that, that this is my first book, but I now really understand how 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 you know i used to sometimes have the criticism of of a book and say well you know you didn't talk about this and you didn't talk about that i'm much less likely to level that criticism now than i once was having written a book because i understand just how hard it is to ever be kind of complete and comprehensive um editing requires leaving things out and one of the things that doesn't get as much I would say play in my book that in some of my writing going forward, I'm trying to spend more time on is beginning to kind of sketch out a progressive criminal justice um, set of policies, you know, a vision of what a criminal justice system looks like that is both that is grounded in and attentive to the lived experience and the trauma that people suffer when they are victims of crime. And yet at the same time, doesn't end up creating all of these kind of terrible, toxic, devastating community-wide effects that we've seen from the approach of the last 40 or 50 years. So I, I, I begin that process in the last chapter of the book, but I really want to move forward because I do agree with you that we're not, you know, it's both, I think, ineffective for progressives to kind of want to poo-poo the, the you know, crime and, and sort of dismiss it. And some of the early, you know, I noticed that. It's one of the reasons I really wanted to dwell on the 1960s, because I don't think you can understand the 70s without it. But also, I've just read too many times people saying, oh, it was a sleight of hand, you know, statistical sleight of hand that crime rose in the 60s. It's not really true. Well, that's just a lie. I mean, it, homicide is not a sleight of hand, and it tripled in D.C., and it doubled nationally. The dead bodies were being counted in 1960, and they were being counted in 1970. And so we've got to really not forget that. But then, then we have to build an alternative response. We can't allow what's continued to be our response. And I, I think you do a really great job telling a complicated story in a way that people who might otherwise not want to hear it will will read closely and pay attention in terms of drawing out both how uh, political, economic, and caste exclusion created the environment within which, which violence um, and disorder arose in black communities in the 1960s and the way in which those systems of oppression constrained um, 
black politicians' responses at the very moment where they were gaining the reins of power for the first time. Your book has been received, I think, because you 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 do this so carefully, a lot differently from a book that that uncovers a somewhat similar history in in Harlem, which is Michael Fortner's um, Black Silent Majority, the Rockefeller Drug Laws, and the Politics of Punishment, which I reviewed, I think, in 2015. Um, he told the story about tough on crime, black politics in Harlem, um, and I think uncovered a lot of, again, excavated a lot of really um, important stories and personalities that you, and you make reference to some of those in your book. Um, but he also makes a very um, assertive case that it was really black people rather than whites that played the central role in creating New York's draconian drug laws. Um, and I think that's what really sparked a lot of criticism of his book. What do you make of the criticism that Fortner's book received and how that compares to the less controversial reception uh, for your book? Well, let me respond to the question this way. Let me focus on what I see as two big differences in our arguments. Um, because as you said, there are, there are certain, there are similarities in terms of the sort of historical material that we both uncovered, you know, him principally in New York, me mainly in DC, both of us relying on some material outside of our main jurisdiction uh, from the 60s and 70s. I mean, but there are two differences in argument. One you've identified already. Um, you asked me the story early. How does my uh, how does my book compare with the narrative that many of us on the left have 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 become well versed in? And my response to you was that I see my work as sitting alongside that and complementing that. And Michael Fortner's argument was that he sees it as rebutting that, and he sees his story as a more important explanatory. Uh, you know, having more explanatory value. I don't think I want to write about black actors. I think black actors are incredibly important, but I think it's uh, a mistake to say you're talking about 12% of the population nationally and that the story and that they, and and a historically oppressed 12% at that, a historically disenfranchised 12% at that, and that their actions and attitudes are, going to be more important than, as a way of understanding what happened, than that of the dominant group. I just don't think that's, I don't think that can possibly be true, and I don't think it was true in the case of mass incarceration. So he and I, dis, right, we disagree about that, and that's a big, dis, that's a big disagreement. Um, the other th- ways in which our books are different and our arguments are very different is that he says, and I quote him to this effect in a footnote in the book, he says that the black activists that he was writing about rejected root cause explanations for crime and as solutions to crime. So they rejected as hopeless, naive liberalism the idea that poverty and racism and segregation and crappy housing and terrible schools help to explain why people commit crimes or are a viable solution. And I find exactly the opposite. I find that the people that that I'm writing, and here we're writing about different people, right? He's talking about folks in New York. I'm talking about folks in D.C. I can't comment on 
the historical record that he reviewed. But what I can say is that every per- virtually every person that I found in the book, whether they were an actor in D.C. or whether they were in some other jurisdiction, Detroit, L.A., Atlanta, Oakland are places that I, that I draw on, they all said things like, we want to fight crime and violence with every tool at society's disposal. We want to make schools better. We want to fight racism. We want to fight segregation. We want national gun control. We want the federal government to develop a Marshall Plan for urban America where they will invest in black communities the way they invested in Europe after World War II. And we want more you know, tough-on-crime policies. They said some version of that, and the polling data that I cite mostly in footnotes because I didn't want to bog down the text of black citizens suggests there's widespread African-American support then and now for that view. So that's another big disagreement between us because my point is that the actors that I'm writing about were constrained by politics and constrained by racism. They couldn't get all that they wanted in response. And whereas Michael says they didn't want those things, they rejected those things. So those differences, I think, are a really big deal. Of course, I think I'm right. We all think right. We all think we're right. If he were on the show, he would tell you why he thinks he's, you know, he's right. But I think that I'm correct on those points, that the, histor- that the history supports my view. And I think those differences are of interpretation are the ma- are the the main reason why reviewers who you know I mean in one case it was the same person right Khalil Muhammad reviewed his book in the Times and then reviewed my book and reached different conclusions and I think that was in part because these those different um you know, the question is, what do you do and how do you interpret some of the material that you found? How do you interpret some of the anger and resentment that the black characters have for drug dealers and violent criminals in their midst? Right. We both find that material, but we 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 interpret it somewhat differently. I think that's the major reason for the different uh, reactions. And I guess there's, I think, one other reason, which is that and this is one where I was very self conscious in the writing. I, I, I produced a very early draft of the book that I gave to a group of students at Fordham Law School, and it didn't have any of my autobiography. I didn't exist as a person in this draft. I, there was only the argument. And by autobiography, I mean both there was none of my history, my family history, my parents' involvement in the civil rights movement, and there was none of my own position as a public defender. That was all gone. And just because of page limits. And they destroyed me. I walked into the room and they treated me the worst review that you could imagine reading that you read of Michael's book. That's what they gave me. They said, you're an apologist. You're I was I was sitting right there. You're a neoconservative. I had to Google you to try to figure out who was writing this trash. I mean, it was the least pleasant hour and a half that I've ever had as a writer. And I was mad at first. How could they misunderstand me? But then I gave it some more thought, and I thought, take that question seriously. How could they misunderstand me? And I think the answer is that they didn't know 
that my positionality I was gone. I was out of the text. So they didn't understand me as somebody who not only was intellectually critical of where we've ended up, so I certainly wasn't apologizing for it, but who was actively working, right, who was in the field as a public defender fighting the fight. And so one of the choices that I made as a writer was to make sure that I reinserted myself in the text. And actually, if you go back at the the, if you go back and look at the book as a piece of writing through this lens, you'll notice something, which is that I reappear in the second half of the book. And one of the reasons that I do that is I never want to let the reader, I don't want the reader to forget who I am. So I introduce myself in the introduction and I make clear my politics and my stance, and then I'm fighting against mass incarceration but I kind of disappear for a few chapters, and then I come back. And the reason for that is I didn't want readers to make the mistake that the students at Fordham made through no faults of their own. I hadn't, hadn't given them the material. So I think that's the other reason. Um, because Michael does say, he's a, he says it, right? He says early on in the introduction, I'm critical of mass incarceration. But then he disappears. And I think readers can forget that, and they can then sort of claim or, or misunderstand him as a defender of the choices that these people are making as opposed to a historian who's trying to tell the story. This episode of The Dig is supported by The Nation, 150 years of political analysis and progressive solutions online and in print. Be sure to listen to The Nation's podcast, Start Making Sense, hosted by John Wiener, new episodes every Thursday. That's John Wiener. In past ads, I mispronounced his last name, which I want to apologize for and also mention how much I empathize with. It's really annoying when people call me Daniel Denver. Anyhow, check out John Wiener's Nation podcast, Start Making Sense, wherever you find podcasts. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. I want to turn to the meat of your book, um, which documents the history of a few political debates and conflicts over criminal justice in yeah. D.C. The the first that you look at is a proposal to decriminalize marijuana possession that pits a white liberal, one of, I think, just two whites on D.C.'s brand new city council at the time, yeah. against that body's most outspoken black nationalist. And it People don't really remember this, but you remind readers that the U.S. was um, headed really towards um, softening policies in, I guess, the early, the late 60s, early 70s um, towards marijuana, but that this proposal, to this decrim proposal in D.C. really ran up hard against the heroin crisis. Yes, absolutely. So I, I was... I couldn't believe it when I found this transcript of the debate over whether to decriminalize marijuana in 1975. I had read a couple of newspaper articles that um, just kind of sketched out the story, so I knew that the proposal had been defeated. Um, But that's about really all that I knew. And then I did you know, this additional research. And what I found was that the proposal to decriminalize marijuana was, as you said, part of a national trend, excuse me, a number of states have decriminalized 
at that point. President Carter was talking about it as a possibility at the federal level. And Dave Clark, a white guy, one of two white guys on D.C. City Council, a pretty unusual biography, he went to Howard Law School. He worked with Martin Luther, Martin Luther King uh, on the Poor People's March in D.C., and then he became a lawyer for poor people, and then he got elected to the, initial, the first city council. And he saw that there were racial disparities in arrests for marijuana possession in D.C., but more than the disparities, he saw that there was a real, a huge increase, five or six times uh, over increase from 1968 to 1975 in the number of arrests for marijuana possession. And he was outraged that as at a moment when the nation was contemplating decriminalization, that M Metropolitan Police Department was ramping up their enforcement. So he proposes basically to treat marijuana possession like a traffic, uh, like, a you know, you'd get a citation. And the opposition and he, and he got and I should be clear there were lots of black supporters of this proposal and one of the things in my book that I try to be really clear about is to show how each one of these debates was contested and I'm necessarily writing you know you're writing a history of the winners and and that means if you're writing a history of mass incarceration you're generally focusing on the moments where the city council in this case toughened the laws or toughened enforcement but along the way at every step there was opposition and some of the votes were close and this one was but the opposition here came from black nationalist city council member former civil rights worker pastor named doug moore and a coalition of black ministers more fascinating to me even than the fact that they opposed decriminalization, again, knowing everything we know about the terrible impact criminalization has had on the black community. But even more interesting than their opposition was why they opposed it. Because if you had asked me, you know, 40, you know, 40 years back, why might they have done that? I, I, I think that I probably would have said something like, well, they lost touch with the community. They didn't really care about the black youth or the, or the black, you know, lower class, working class blacks that were being arrested disproportionately. But what I found in this instance was uh, just the opposite. Doug Moore was really a candidate of the people. He was actually endorsed by a coalition of prisoners uh, who endorsed candidates for the first city council uh, election. And he viewed himself as really part of the revolutionary vanguard. And he said, among other things, he said, look, we're never going to be over, over, able to overcome racism and overcome prejudice if we aren't in control of our faculties. And, uh, or to use the shorthand that he and others sometimes use, you know, you can't lead an army um, if the troops are asleep. And the army that they were imagining leading was an army that was going to go and fight racism and, and build a strong black community. So it had those kind of right nationalist elements that in today I think people associate with groups like the Nation of Islam. Um, but in addition, there was this very real concern about marijuana as a gateway drug. And the ministers, especially the black church, which was very powerful in D.C. at the time as a political force, endorsed candidates, got people to the polls. The, the ministers were almost universally opposed to decriminalization. Um, and they said, among other things, that it would lead to heroin addiction. And Jackie Robinson, the baseball great, 
was going around at the time to black churches and civic organizations and preaching against marijuana decriminalization. And his example was his son, Jackie Jr., who had become a heroin addict. And Jackie Sr. said, my son started with marijuana. So don't think it's uh, a harmless drug. And then the final kind of, to me, fascinating piece about it was the way in which they were so clear-eyed about racism, people like Doug Moore, but yet they still viewed they still viewed decriminalization as something to avoid. So Moore would say, listen, white kids in the suburbs, they can go and get high, and they might still do okay in school because their schools are better. Or if they become addicted, their parents will have money for expensive drug treatment programs. We don't have that. So it was this idea that because we're stigmatized, because we're second-class citizens, we have to be twice as good, right, which is an argument that you often hear in barbershops, in churches, in homes, but here it expressed itself as public policy. And, yeah, there's some really remarkable things that I think were, were, were pretty normal beliefs, not only within the black community as the whole, but amongst black radicals. You quote Stokely Carmichael calling drugs a trick of the oppressor and a group in D.C. that called drug dealers, quote, black faced traitors of our people who sell dope to our young boys and girls and make whores and thieves of them for white faced dog dealers. There was this real sense that after all of the fights and tenuous gains of the civil rights struggle that that heroin and and violence were were potentially going to to undo it all exactly exactly and it's language that we're not even you know that seems so um out of place today it's it was it was it's shocking i think to a lot of people um who read it and again what i find so fascinating is even that quote that you you gave from uh, the Hassan Jeru Ahmed and the Black Men's Development Corporation in D.C. Um, they even that quote, right? They talk about white dog face dealers, so they know, and a lot of their literature, they're clear that it's white people that are controlling the trade, right? They'll say we're not the ones that are bringing drugs to America, and you'll hear that a lot now. But then their next sentence was, but we are the ones that are in the ghetto selling it. And that, and you, you have an obligation to the community to not be doing that. And so they were very clear about who the master controllers were, but that still for them didn't then excuse the street level dealer to whom they were and toward whom they were incredibly hostile, and in many cases, violent, either violent themselves or would make referrals to law enforcement. That was the other thing. I mean, Hassan Jeru Ahmed reported a lot of these dealers himself to the authorities. There was a court filing in the 19, later in the 1970s where a prosecutor called Hassan Jeru Ahmed a gutsy informant. Um, so, so they were clear about racism, but that for them didn't then excuse the street-level dealer. There was even opposition to methadone as a opioid substitution treatment for heroin. Yeah, their view 
uh, which was a, which was a fairly common view among the black left in the early 1970s, was that this was just substituting one drug for another. So one of the things that we've forgotten is that the Nixon administration was actually, although they did lots of bad things on criminal justice policy, but one thing they were good on was uh, they had a really robust methadone program, and they were trying to roll out uh, treatment programs in lots of cities. Michael Massing's book, The Fix, which was written, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, tells this history really nicely. Um, but their opposition came from lots of places, but one of the places that it came from was was former addicts, um, guys that had been incarcerated, uh, like Drew Ahmed, who said, um, we, we need to be clean. That being being on government-run methadone is going to keep us down in the same way that being on heroin would. So he, he supported methadone in very small doses and for about a month or two. But the goal was not maintenance. The goal, that was the government's goal, methadone maintenance. That was the Nixon administration programs led by people like DuPont and Jaffe. But Hassan Jirama said, no, no we got to get clean. So if it takes you about a month to wean yourself off with small doses, okay. But then after that, no drugs, no methadone, no heroin. It's it's uh, The stories you recover, again, are just so remarkably foreign to where we are today when people like me on the left who, who focus on drug policy are talking about not just methadone, but prescription heroin and supervised injection sites and even across-the-board decriminalization, legalization, regulation. Um Going back to um, the marijuana decriminalization debate on city council, how did um, how did that play out? Well, it played out uh, with uh, the city council actually voted in its initial vote. It voted to pass decriminalization, but um, under a feature of DC law, it needed two votes. And in the meantime, the chair of the city council, a guy named Sterling Tucker. Um, who always was who was a very cautious politician, the ministers doubled and tripled down in their lobbying efforts of him, um, and they basically uh, said to him, "Listen, you should table this." Um, and they told him that they were also working on the mayor to get the mayor Walter Washington to veto it. And so they they more or less said to him, "You know, if you let this go through, the mayor's going to veto it, so it's never going to become law. But we're always going to remember that you let it go through." So you should just use your prerogative as the chair to to basically, you know, table it and, and make sure it doesn't come to a vote. And he had the power to do that and he was persuaded and he did it. So it never it never it never in that year actually made it to uh to the mayor's desk and it, it never became law. And and we then had over forty years of marijuana criminalization in D C with all of the terrible racial effects that you and I and many of your listeners will now be familiar with um, black people in D.C. being eight times more likely uh, to be arrested on marijuana possession, despite the fact that we know that um, from every every statistic, statistical study that's been done, um, plus um, certainly my own experience at places like Brown, where I was a student, and Yale, where I was a student, that drug use is evenly distributed across American society. So uh, it's really, um, it, it was really a terrible, terrible mistake that they made to not, uh, to not pass the law, to not decriminalize when they had a chance to. 
Another issue you look at, another debate, is Initiative 9, a ballot initiative around mandatory minimums. Explain what happened there. Well, you now by the late 1970s, you had uh, heroin had somewhat receded from view, but it hadn't gone away. Um, and crime was uh, still high and still much higher than had been in the beginning of the 1960s. And so people were still living in a world that, you know, looked very different from what they remember. One of the mistakes that we make when we talk about criminal justice numbers is people will say, oh, you know, crime, you know, crime went down last year or crime's gone down for two or three years in a row. Um, but I think for most people, they often compare crime to when they were younger, when they were growing up. And so for people that were now a political age in D.C., the crime rate, although it had gone down for a couple of years in a row, it was much, much higher than it had been when they were teenagers and young adults um, in the early 1960s. And so the city is really consumed by what it sees as a crime and a drug crisis. And it was a time for the city for, again, some historical reasons. The drug laws in D.C. hadn't been updated for almost 50 years, and there was a lot of pressure to change them. And two, a, legis a legislator and a former police chief really stepped in to push for tougher laws. So John Ray uh, was one of the legislators. He was on the city council. And Bertel Jefferson, who had joined the D.C. police force, at this point, almost you know, 40 years earlier, not long after World War II, had been one of the first black officers on the force and eventually rose to become the first chief of D.C. and the first chief of, as, as you said up front, of the first majority black police force in the country. He steps down and he decides to spend his time also pushing for tougher drug laws. So John Ray and Bertel Jefferson lobby the city council, and they want to do two things. They want to increase the maximum that's available for selling hard drugs, heroin and, uh, heroin and cocaine in particular, and they want mandatory minimums. They don't get the mandatory minimums from the, from, through the legislative process. There's a wide range of officials and civil rights organizations, and I actually thought this was interesting because one of the things that I had come to believe was that the civil rights community was pretty silent on criminal justice issues until fairly recently. And that, that's generally true, but it was fascinating that the ACLU and the NAACP and the Urban League, they all testified in 1980 against mandatory minimums in D.C. So the mandatory minimums didn't happen, but they won an important victory, which is they got the maximums increased to 15 years. So starting in 1981, that meant that if you were caught selling any amount of heroin or cocaine, you faced a maximum of 15 years in prison on a first offense. And then it doubled um, after that first offense. But then Jefferson and Ray went further and they went to the voters and they said, let's get mandatory minimums through a ballot initiative. So it's called Initiative 9, and they pushed for mandatories for, for gun offenses, if you were convicted of committing a crime while armed with a gun, and for selling drugs. And they, it was a pretty relatively low-budget campaign. It didn't get tons of press attention. It got some, 
but they went around the city and they would do a press conference. You know, if there was a, a an, an open air drug market, they would do a press conference there. If there was somebody shot, they would go and do a press conference there and say, this is why we need tougher laws. This is why we need mandatory minimums. And they used a racial justice argument. They said that we needed mandatory laws because without mandatory laws, discretion always worked out in favor of white people. And I think it's almost crazy for us to think about it now because we know the racial disparities that mandatory minimums and the war on drugs have helped to reinforce. But their point was that judges could go easy on somebody without mandatory minimums, and the people that they tended to go easy on were white people or people that were wealthy or people with means. And they wanted the law to treat everybody fairly, and that's why we needed across-the-board mandatory minimums. And the other side didn't really have much to say in response, and this gets to your point about not being prepared to really take crime seriously and kind of and get deep into how what it means to live in a community where there is a lot of shooting and there is a lot of drug dealing. Um, but the other side, you know, had a pretty kind of a meek response, um, and it was a pretty technic, sort of technical, um, technocratic response. And even if they had had a better response, I don't know that it would have succeeded because this was still early on in the war on drugs before the consequences of all these decisions had become clear. The federal government wouldn't pass its own mandatory minimums for drug offenses for four or five more years. So D.C. was really a front runner. Um, but it passed. It passed at the polls and it passed in every neighborhood. Um, it passed in every ward. It passed in almost every precinct. It passed in every precinct in the city. There are over 100 um, except for one, except for Pal- yeah. except for Palisades, <laughs> yeah. which is one of the most afflu- like overwhelmingly white, very affluent neighborhood adjacent That's to exactly right. Now, I don't want to read too much into that because it could have been. I mean, I think there are like a hundred and something people in that in that precinct at that. So there might have been, you know, forty. They, you might have had one or two liberal families li- living in a big house, and they could have turned the tide. But you're right; it is striking that it passed. <laughs> That is that is the one place that it that it didn't pass. But yeah, it passed in in middle class black neighborhoods and upper middle class black neighborhoods and in working class and poor black neighborhoods. It passed really overwhelmingly, over seventy percent of the vote in favor. Um, and and then and and that's how the city got that's how the city got mandatory minimums and it ha- how it got these very very long drug offenses. It did eventually, D.C. did about 15 years later, reconsider the mandatory minimums and roll them back, at least for the drug drug offenses, but it never, and still to this day, has not um, uh, rolled them back for the gun offenses, and it's done nothing to reduce the maximums. So it's still the case. In fact, it's increased the maximums. You now are eligible, now you can now get 30 years for selling heroin or cocaine on a first offense. Now, nobody actually does, but setting the maximum that high has all sorts of signaling signaling effects. And it means that when a judge imposes two or three years, it looks like the judge is being lenient, right? When in fact, two or three years for selling a small amount of a narcotic is, 
you know, by my accounts, is, extraordinarily yeah, is, is draconian. Insane. Yeah. Um, so, and it also increases the prosecutor's leverage over exactly the process. Right. It's one of the re- there are lots of reasons why so many cases plead, but that's one of them. That's exactly right. So on 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 guns, which you write a lot about in this book, um, and does not get enough attention. Um, the the war on guns is something we've spoken about before. I quoted you in an article I wrote about it for Jacobin, mm-hmm. I think, last year. Um, and it's something that liberals um, and maybe even leftists don't, still don't quite grasp the ramifications of. And it's a complicated issue, especially if you, like me, would prefer, um, theoretically, to live in a society with zero guns. But the reality, and you show how this reality unfolds in D.C. in a lot of detail, is that the gun control that actually exists in this country, um, which by and large is things like mandatory minimums for illegal gun possession and other such offenses, is is one that in effect locks up a lot of poor black people. How did that play out in D.C.? Yeah, well, that, uh, so the, for me, the starting point on this one, this was what I found as when I was in practice as a public defender. I think one of the things that I found the most shocking is how the gun laws in D.C. that I saw operated very much like the drug laws. That is to say, there was an item that we didn't want people to have or possess in this country. However, we were, as a country, we were swamped with said item. And what we did was we had very harsh and draconian laws which from what I could see as a public defender, we applied almost exclusively to black people. That, that's how it looked to me when I would go to court because all of my clients, whether it was on a drug charge or it was on a gun charge, were African-American and overwhelmingly they were poor and overwhelmingly they were for, from a discrete set of neighborhoods in the city. And... Yet, I always, it was so strange to me then and to this day that all of my friends who were critics of the war on drugs also supported what we called gun control and in fact thought we should have more of it. Um, And I would always say to people, to my friends, wait, why do we call this gun control? Why don't we just call it the war on guns? Because we're doing the same thing. And people ah, you know, what are you, you know, what are you talking about? And I never got anywhere with anybody. I still don't get anywhere with anybody, hardly on this topic. But that's what I saw, and I never really knew how we had come to it. And so I, when I went back and did the research, I found out that in the same year that DC considered whether to decriminalize marijuana and decided to keep it criminal. The city council also passed a law criminalizing gun possession. And again, the motivations were understandable and straightforward, right? We've already talked about how the homicide rate tripled in the 1960s. And lots of people testified, and they said things like, you know, Richard Ware who worked at the State Department, he testified. His son was killed. Um, he was, his son worked at a grocery store and was taking the proceeds to the bank at the end of the day. He was a manager, and he was shot and killed after being robbed. And Richard Ware, African-American guy, goes to the city council. He's now looking up at 
you know, a city council that's 11 out of 13 black members. And he says, the problem we face today in the city is black man with a gun killing another black man. And nobody really, no one disputed that. No one disagreed with him. The other people in the council saw all the same numbers and the same reality that he was describing. And they wanted to do something. And so they criminalized gun possession and they passed the law that, you know, is now became famously became the strictest gun control law in the country and was the thing that was ultimately a few years ago struck back, struck down by the Supreme Court in D.C. versus Heller, although the D.C. Council went back and passed another law that was still pretty strict. And when I think about why they did that, right, I understand their motivation, which is to pr protect black lives. That's why that chapter of the, the book is actually called Black Lives Matter. And I also understand the constraints that they were under, because this is a really good example of how they couldn't do everything they wanted to do. They almost to a person wanted national gun control. They wanted the federal government and they, to either ban guns or to make gun possession very, very highly regulated. And they were wildly optimistic in some ways that's almost, it almost feels tragic today. You know, they talked about how their law was going to be a model for the nation and that other cities and the country would, if they took this step, would ultimately, would ultimately follow. And one of the, one of the, one of the main proponents of the law uh, John Wilson, out of the civil rights movement himself, he said, he said, you know, people criticize me and say, I want to take away their guns. Well, they're right. I do want to take away their guns. I want to take away everybody's gun. So they were so much more either, they, they, they were so, they, they, the whole conversation sounded so different. From, its, from the way that it sounds today, where we're so constrained and we're talking about the capacity of magazines and background checks. Um, they felt like they were so much further down the path of actually getting rid of guns. But the tragedy to me of the story is that when you do pass local laws, like the ones they passed in D.C., and you do have no national gun control policy, as we don't in this country, and you put those things together and then you combine poverty and joblessness and all of the other things that we know help give rise to crime. You put all that together and you get for guns exactly what we have for drugs, which is the reality that I saw in D.C. as a public defender and that all my friends that are public defenders say is very much the reality still to this day, which is the only people that are actually getting prosecuted and in some cases getting locked up for possession of guns are black people. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by listeners who support us on Patreon and by Verso. One title that we think Dig listeners would enjoy is October, The Story of the Russian Revolution by China Mieville. In a panoramic sweep stretching from St. Petersburg and Moscow to the remotest villages of a sprawling empire, October is a narrative history that uncovers the catastrophes, intrigues, and inspirations of 1917 in all their passion, drama, and strangeness. Intervening in long-standing historical debates, but told with the reader new to the topic especially in mind, this is a breathtaking story of humanity at its greatest and most desperate. 
of a turning point for civilization that still resonates loudly today. October, The Story of the Russian Revolution by China Mieville, out now from Verso. Hey, this is Dan Denver, host of The Dig, breaking into the show to remind you that if you are a regular listener and like the show, to consider going to patreon.com and offering us some financial support. We have a bunch of socialist swag to give away, but most importantly, it's your contributions that make this show possible. So please check it out and thank you. And keep tuning in. In the next few weeks, we'll have interviews with Naomi Klein, Sarah Jaffe, and more. Thanks. Back to the show. Another part of the gun story that you tell is how gun getting guns off the street is used to justify increasingly aggressive policing. Um, this is a piece of the stop and frisk story in in New York under Mayor Bloomberg, for example, that everyone knows about stop and frisk, but doesn't quite make the connection to the fact that gun control was used to legitimate it. In in D.C., um, the the story that you tell about this involves um, Eric Holder, who ultimately became Obama's first attorney general, but who enters the picture as D.C.'s first black U.S. attorney. Holder talking about the use of um, pretextual vehicular stops to search for guns says, did Martin Luther King successfully fight the likes of Bull Connor so that we could ultimately lose the struggle for civil rights to misguided or malicious members of our own race? Um, Explain how um, how police in D.C. um, start using using the war on guns to, to justify aggressive tactics. Well, so Eric Holder knows D.C. well, right? And he, in a lot of ways, is a is a kind of a classic parad- paradigmatic character in my book because he cares deeply for the black community. He is a race man. He gives a speech, you quoted from it in part, right? He gives a speech in 1995, the Martin Luther King Address, and he says, in addition to the line you quote, he says that the black people of D.C. are no freer today than were the people of Selma, Alabama in 1955. What's keeping us locked up is crime and violence, and what was keeping them locked up was Jim Crow segregation. Right? And so it's an incredibly big deal in black America when you invoke Selma. Everybody knows what you're talking about. And so Holder's concern, I th- or his, his motivations come from a place, I think, of deep concern and genuine concern. Um, but it also points out how when you have that concern and you have it in a world where your imagination is so constrained, right, and your role is so constrained, because he was a prosecutor, so he wanted to do more things. He wanted to bring jobs to D.C., but he didn't have, that wasn't his role. His role was a prosecutor, so he's going to follow his role, which is tougher law enforcement. And the particular idea that he proposes in D.C., and he wasn't the only one doing it. Other people were doing it in other cities, but it was basically the car version of the stop and frisk that you described uh, in New York City. So this the idea behind this was pretext stops, or what the police sometimes call investigatory stops. These are stops where the police find, first they, they are suspicious of the car. They have some reason they want to pull this car over. Then 
they find a pretext to pull it over. They find a violation. Your your tint on your windows is too dark. Your your, your taillight is obscured. You have air fresheners hanging from your front window and obscuring the windshield, allegedly. You're driving too fast. You're driving too slow. You stop too long at the stop sign. You stop not long enough at the stop sign, and on and on and on. A skilled officer can find any of us violating the law in about 60 seconds. So they do that, but they don't care about the traffic violation itself. What they want to do is they want to look into the car, which they're allowed to do under law once they've stopped it for a traffic violation. And ideally, and if their suspicions are raised at all, they want to search the car. That's why they pulled you over, to search the car. And they do this. This is the plan. This isn't, to be clear, this is not like I didn't find some concealed document or this isn't conjecture. There was no, this was stated publicly by Eric Holder on the radio, in radio interviews with local D.C. Uh, uh, interviewers, you know, hosts of radio shows. This was the plan. And they were, that's how they were going to get guns off the street. And they did it. And they got some guns. They also, along the way, of course, got a lot of other stuff. And one of the stories that I tell in the book is about a woman that I came to represent when I was a public defender. Her name is Sandra Dozier. She was pulled over as part of one of these pretext stops. She was asked about guns. She said, I don't have any guns. They said, can we search? Like over 90% of the people, she said yes. They found about $20 worth of marijuana in her glove box. The police are actually pretty decent to her. She says, listen, I got a job. She points to her uniform in the back seat. Please don't arrest me. I'll miss work tomorrow morning. They don't. They give her a citation. She shows up in court a week later with the citation. The prosecutor's pretty decent. They no paper the case. They don't deal with $20 worth of marijuana, right? They're after guns. So everyone in the criminal justice system at this point feels like They've acted fairly, right? If you would ask somebody like Holder, he'd probably say, hey, well, this is okay. We were looking for guns. We didn't find it. Yeah, we find this nonsense weed, but we don't prosecute her for it. Seems fair enough. But, I mean, put to one side the, the unfairness of being stopped to begin with, right? I don't want to minimize that. But this is the mentality of people in the criminal justice system. However, what nobody is accounting for is the fact that lots of employers have rules about being arrested. She was on probationary status. She had just gotten hired, and she was on uh, a period of probationary status. And one of the rules of the probationary status is that any arrest while you're on probation is grounds for termination. So when she goes to try to get a certificate of clean record at the department of, uh, the, the uh, courthouse, it comes back with arrest for marijuana possession. She presents it to her supervisor. She figures it's going to be okay because it was all dismissed. She's terminated. She comes to see me devastated. She has stood in lines at job fairs for over a year to try to get this job, and she's a good employer, employee. Her, her employer spoke highly of her when I, spoke, when I interviewed him, but he told me, listen, not out of my hands, company policy. I can't do anything about it. She's lost her job. So this, to me, is a really good example of one of the dysfunctions of our criminal justice system, which is that 
we've never really in, incorporate and internalize and process and accept all of the down-the-line consequences of some of the upfront punitive acts. And so Sandra Dozier, she never got her job back. And I was faced, you know, confronting her, trying to help her with how to explain the fact that somebody who had overcome incredible obstacles. She had gone to a terrible school in D.C. that most kids don't graduate from, yet she had graduated. She had stood online for a year trying to get a job and finally gotten one at a job fair. She was taking care of her um, infant daughter, who was there on the side of the road with her while the police searched her car and was, and, you know, was crying and was overcome by all of this. She was a person that in normal society would think of as she was a striver, an achiever, a person with grit, a person that had overcome obstacles. A kind but, of person that, uh, that Ben Carson could be enthusiastic about. Yes, but all of that, all of that was rendered meaningless by one line on one arrest printout, possession of marijuana, all of which was a result of this aggressive pretext stop, investigatory stop policy that was justified on the grounds of trying to get guns off the street. A uh, quick editorial aside to listeners. Most people uh, often give their consent when police um, ask if they can search a person, a car, a home. And uh, the correct response is always, I do not consent to a search of my person or possessions. Um, One big piece of the story that you tell is the class divide within the black community. Um, While tough on crime policies did receive a lot of support throughout black D.C., you note that black middle class people did not experience the brunt of their impact. Um, And that, for example, this is one reason that racial profiling something that harms black people across the board, has always been a leading concern for more affluent black people. Um, Meanwhile, mass incarceration hurts um, poor black people much, much more than than affluent and middle-class black people. But you also make the case that it wasn't just the politics of respectability at play. I think that's right. I think that we can't really understand what's happened in criminal justice policy in our in our criminal system nationally i think we have to be very aware of both race and class so when i say that i want to talk about class i i always need to be very upfront with people which is to say this doesn't mean i'm in any way minimizing the role of race i think that race is incredibly powerful um and most of our, our conversation so far has been through that lens but i also think that Alongside that, co-joined with it, um, bound up with it, is a question of of class, and I think that class plays itself out in all kinds of ways. So, as you said, so racial profiling is something that um, cuts across the class divide in black communities. Right, the reason why it initially, I think, became an issue was, you know, back in the 1990s, this notion of racial profiling or driving while ba- black. Driving while black was a was a phenomenon before the term mass incarceration ever existed. Driving while black was a very popular term, and it was a criticism of discrimination in the criminal justice system. And it was a valid, uh, a valid criticism. 
and it stemmed from the fact that your educational background and your economic background, none of that protects you as a black person from being pulled over on the street, driving a car, uh, and being, uh, you know, asked for a search or, you know, consent to search or otherwise. But there are, so that's something that cuts across black America, but there are other aspects of the criminal justice system that are more class specific. So if we look at the likelihood of going to prison in your lifetime, it's 10 times higher for a black man who's dropped out of high school than it is for a black man who's gone to college. And the numbers we have are, for men, I suspect it would be similar for women as well. But the, the, the research that I'm referring to here, citing Bruce Western, um, is focusing on black men. And I think that has then has an impact on, on issues that get taken up by the black political class. I also think, and one of the things, you know, another way of thinking about class that's in the book is I, I quote Calvin Rolark, who's one of the founders of DC's um, black newspapers, the second most influential black paper, the informer uh, in the 1950s and 1960s. And Rolark says that there's all kinds of divides within black DC and within black America, but he's focusing on DC and speaking of DC, he says, look, in DC, now speaking in the 1950s and 1960s, he said the light-skinned blacks didn't want to deal with the darker-skinned blacks, and the Howard University blacks didn't want to deal with anybody. Right? And he was saying it in a joking way, but he was tapping into something, both questions of colorism, right, which are under-discussed um, but important, and questions of educational and, and economic status. And I think that we have to hold two ideas in our heads at the same time, right? And one idea is the profound impact that race and racism have had on the construction of the criminal system that we're living with now. And the second, alongside it, is the idea that there are class divisions and class distinctions and class realities that help to explain why our criminal justice system has become so harsh, even in black communities. And I, I, another thing is I think that focusing on both class and race at the same time, um, because uh, they are by no means either politically or analytically mutually exclusive, That's though right. sometimes people treat them as they're such, as though they're such, um, is uh, that it could open some real politically powerful opportunities to create coalitions to fight mass incarceration with with poor white people who are are impacted um, and uh, serving mandatory minimum sentences, sentences alongside poor black people, not as at high rates, but at pretty extraordinarily high rates. I do think that claims for racial justice have at times, right, the civil rights movement being the leading example of such, have had um, have gripped the national consciousness. Um, having said that, I couldn't agree with you more um, that, uh, that just as an empirical reality, we know that while incarceration rates for African Americans are much higher than they are for racial groups, we also know that poor white people, that within white America, it's poor white people that have overwhelmingly been the subject of over-policing, over-punishment, uh, over over-enforcement, 
um, and lack of investment in mental health programs and in drug treatment programs and in alternatives to incarceration. And you can go, the one thing that is true about almost everybody in prison anywhere in this country, regardless of their race, regardless of their gender, the one thing that is overwhelmingly true is that people grew up in poor households, poor neighborhoods, were subject to trauma, abuse, neglect as young people, and went to underfunded, inadequate, poorly resourced, poorly resourced, low expectation schools. Those things are true across the board. I have one final question, and there are about two dozen questions that I didn't even get to ask you, and I've kept you a really long time, but this is one of the most fascinating books I've read in a while. Um, and my last question, as I often try to do after a interview about incredibly depressing things, is to look at possible uh, solutions to those depressing things. And one of your book's core arguments is that the history of mass incarceration in reality comprises a really large number of micro-histories, that it is, quote, the result of small, distinct steps, each of whose significance becomes more apparent over time and only when considered considered in light of later events. It's so often a story, I think, as a result of how complicated it is to tell dozens, if not hundreds of stories, that's told on the federal level, even though it is state and local policies and laws and practices that have led to most of mass incarceration and the great majority of incarcerated Americans being incarcerated. Um, and so you argue as a, as the upshot of that, I think you say is that perhaps mass incarceration must be fought on an incremental level as well. But you also note that this is a fraught project because of the, the current way that it's being incrementally fought is to draw this distinction between Nonviolent drug offenders who are framed as relative, relatively innocent and excessively punished on the one hand, and then throw the other category of violent offenders, which is a huge portion of the prison population, under the bus as irredeemable thugs. How do you think um, opponents of mass incarceration can both um, move forward one incremental step after the other? but without locking some of the more draconian and vicious aspects of of the carceral state in place? Well, I think incrementalism is inevitable in this in this area. There's just, there's just no other option. So my objection to the sort of violent, nonviolent distinction and my criticism of President Obama and Eric Holder and other people for reinforcing it isn't so much that you t- take a piece and you focus on that first. It's the way you talk about the rest along the way. So it's one thing to say, listen, this distinction is largely, um, you know, doesn't have a whole lot of content, but we're going to focus on the aspect where we think we can get support right now. That's sort of one way of describing it. And another is to, in a much more sort of full-throated, robust way, the way President Obama did, is to say, well, listen, you know, I've got some 
concern and sympathy, and I want to be absolutely clear here, I'm talking about nonviolent drug offenders, those other people, that violent crime, violent offenders, I don't have a lot of sympathy for that. That's very different because there you're sort of, in essence, kind of labeling and tarring and feathering a, um, an aspect of um, the system as saying, you know, that you're beyond hope and beyond redemption. And not just, I'm not going to get to you right now, but why would I ever get to you? And that's, so that's, to me, a, 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 an important distinction. But in terms of the kind of incremental pieces, um, one of the... One of the horrors of 2.2 million people in prison, 7 million people under criminal justice supervision, 6 or 7 million people who have lost their right to vote, and one of the horrors of that is that it's affected every aspect of American society. Um, and But that does create a concomitant obligation and opportunity, which it means that in almost every space, there's something that we can do. So I tend to divide, for me, I tend to, I think about reforms in some different categories. So, you know, I have my kind of my root cause category where I have a whole bunch of things on that list. But if you were to force me and say, listen, James, I don't I can I can't do 17 things. I can only focus on one right now. Give me your one. Um, For me, it would be jobs. For me, that's the one thing in the sort of societal change root cause bucket that is, I think, the most powerful at um, helping um, people avoid getting involved in the criminal justice system to begin with, and also for people who are coming out, allowing them to reconnect to society. So I would tell, you know, the same way we have saturation policing and hotspots policing, and people say, we have to throw half the officers in the city of Chicago into this neighborhood this weekend because it's going to be hot. I want to do saturation jobs. And I think that if we were to think about criminal justice, quote-unquote, hotspots in that same way, um, we'd 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 have a major impact. But moving beyond root causes, if we want to look at aspects of, you know, the criminal justice system itself, again, I think there's a lot, I actually think there's a group of progressives right now who are starting to both envision and build an alternative uh, system. So uh, out of Seattle, that's now spread nationally, law enforcement assisted diversion, where actually officers have the authority with the consent of the people they're interacting with, uh, not coerced, but they have the authority to skip the criminal justice process entirely and help somebody get into drug treatment and mental health treatment and find um, emergency housing. Uh, That, I think, has a lot of potential at the very front end, as does restorative justice. Um, And, you know, one of the things I write about in the book, one of the cases that I write about in the book at the end is, um, you know, my client... Dante committed a robbery. He he robbed a man um, named Mr. Thomas. And as I told that story, um, you know, in some detail, some people started to come up to me because I talked about meeting with Mr. Thomas and presenting Dante's apology letter and sharing his life history. And there were people that started to come up to me and say, you know, that's not full-fledged, but what you were describing is the very beginning of what we're doing in restorative justice. And I've started to learn a lot more about that process and seen its potential to bring, bring people who are victims of crime and who have committed crimes together 
in conversation, in facilitated healing circles. And this goes back to a point that you were mentioning up front, right, which is this is taking the crime seriously. And this is demanding accountability. This isn't doing nothing. It's what I like about LEAD. LEAD understands that that person on the corner that strung out on drugs, they do need help. And they are bothering other people in the neighborhood. But that doesn't mean that they need what we've been giving in the criminal justice system. And restorative justice says victims need to be heard. Communities need to be healed. People need to be held accountable in a real way for their actions. But that doesn't have to happen through prisons and courts. And so I actually think that those at the front end, and then when we move to uh, the prison system itself, I'm doing a lot of work on creating excellent schools, both in juvenile facilities and for adults who are incarcerated. I teach a class myself. In a, in, a, in a prison in the state of Connecticut. And then at the back end, for people that are coming out, again, to go back to jobs, I think one of the most powerful movements that's out there is this movement to welcome people who have been convicted of criminal offenses, who are returning from prison, or maybe who never went to prison, who right now we almost exclude entirely from the job, job market, to try to create opportunities to welcome them back into uh, employment. There was recently uh, the Ford Foundation made a presentation at a prison in New York, and Ford Foundation does amazing work on criminal justice reform around the country, and they presented all their work, and one of the guys in the New York State Prison raised his hand and said, that's fascinating. I love hearing about what you're doing around the world. I just have one question. When I get out of here, could I get hired by the Ford Foundation? And there was silence in the room, right? Because the answer was no. But to their credit, they went back, they scrubbed their HR policy, they found like most employers, there's about 97 ways in which the answer to that question was no. And about 90 of them they were willing to get rid of. Um, so they left a few exclusions in place, but a, but a much smaller number than they had beforehand. But then they went further than that because one of the biggest obstacles for people coming out of prison is that even when they can be hired, they don't think they can. So they've actually affirmatively gone out and created internships, which they specifically market to people who have been convicted. And they say, come apply for this paid internship. And if you do well, after three, six months, we can hire you in a full-time position. And so those are you know, those are the beginning to me of the components from root causes to front end to while you're in prison to now you're coming out of prison that I think are are beginning to take to take shape. And it's early. Um, but when I go around the country and give talks on this book, almost every talk I give, somebody comes up to me and they say, in the last couple of years, my community has started and now insert the blank. And it's something along the lines of what I've just been describing. So I think there's this huge appetite nationally to develop and implement a set of alternatives um, to what we've been doing because so many people know that it's broken. James Foreman Jr., thank you very much. Thank you.
James Foreman Jr. is a professor at Yale Law School and the author of Locking Up Our Own, Crime and Punishment in Black America. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx was once overheard saying, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please check us out on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcasts and subscribe. And also on iTunes, leave us a lovely review. Those reviews go a long way in helping introduce us to new listeners, which is lovely. So does spreading the word to your friends. Please make propaganda for us. And please find us on Patreon and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a huge help. 